This podcast contains explicit content. Listener's discretion is advised. POV by Lustery explores culture, politics, and creativity in the sex industry, one point of view at a time. I'm your host, Aria Vega. Sharonda J. Brown is an author, essayist, and storyteller based in North Carolina in the U.S., Sharonda says she's been a writer since the time she could hold a pencil and a huge fan of horror for almost as long. But these days, she's more likely to write about scary stories instead of writing them herself. I write a lot of horror stories in my head. I'll say that. Um, They don't always make it to the page, but I do a lot of media analysis. And usually I write about horror stories and specifically blackness in horror. Tell me what it is about horror that you find compelling. Um, I think for me as a kid, it was just taboo. Like I wasn't allowed to engage in horror things. Like pretty much we only watched Disney movies growing up. Um, Anything else was the devil. And so I think part of that was that it's something I wasn't allowed to do. So I secretly sought it out. But eventually I just came to think horror is a much more important genre it deserves a lot more respect than it gets because there are a lot of things about society's anxieties and fears and things we don't want to talk about that get revealed in horror and i think it's just an amazing genre and it's an opportune genre to explore a lot of the ideas that i'm interested in those ideas include systemic oppression social injustice and queer identity which Sharonda also explores in her writing more broadly. She's particularly interested in asexual identity and what it can reveal about the dominant culture of compulsory sexuality or the notion that desiring sex is an inherent aspect of the human experience. A recent release from Pixar illustrated this perfectly. When Encanto came out, there was a guy who wrote that piece about how Encanto was a part of this pattern of movies coming out without love stories in them because in Canto there were no love interests for the main character and I was thoroughly confused (laughs) as was most of Twitter (laughs) because it's a Disney movie first of all and I know we're used to Disney movies having romantic interest in romantic love at the center of the stories I know that however there is plenty of love in Encanto it is absolutely a love story It's just not a heterosexual romantic love story, and it does not end with a marriage and a baby on the way. And so it it, it upset people who are used to that. And people just had this anxiety about sex disappearing from media, and it's just simply not true. There's romantic and either implied or explicit subplots in most mainstream stories, even when it does not serve the story, even when it is detrimental to the story. It's always there. It's incredibly difficult to find media without it. And I think folks on the asexuality spectrum, even folks of other forms of queerness, are hyper aware of that because we're so used to seeing specifically heterosexuality and other folks don't become aware of it until it's absent. And it's not just movies and television. It's also music. Like, have you ever tried to make a playlist with songs that don't mention sex or romance? I wouldn't bother trying because I would get exhausted. (laughs) It's so hard. (laughs) It's so hard to do. Yeah, it's just ever-present. It's everywhere. And I think people get so used to it being there that they're not even used to it anymore. Do you remember the first time that you heard someone use the word asexual? 
I was in grad school. So that means I was in my early 20s when I first heard it. What was your initial impression of it? Well, actually, I had started looking into it because I um, was considering whether or not a friend of mine, uh, like a colleague and a classmate of mine at the time, might be on the spectrum. So I started doing research for them. And then as I was reading, I was like, hold on a bit. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And that's how I learned it. It's a spectrum, right? Like there's not just one experience. I think that understanding of a spectrum is really helpful, especially for people who have only heard asexuality described in this in this idea of of lacking something. It's frequently defined as lacking sexual attraction, um, which is troublesome for so many reasons. Can you talk about that, actually? Um, What is wrong with that perspective and what's what's a more helpful framework? So... Well, when I was writing the book, I knew I wanted to offer an alternative to the way we have been thinking about and talking about asexuality so far. Because to be honest, the framework of lack does not work for me. And I don't feel like I'm lacking in anything. And I don't think it's useful or healthy for me to think of myself as lacking in anything. Would we describe a heterosexual person as lacking sexual attraction to the same gender? No, we would not because we don't, um, because it doesn't make any sense to do that. And as many disability activists and advocates will tell you, difference is not deficit. So why would we conceive of anyone's sexual difference as a deficit when it's not harming anyone? I love the definition provided by Lisa Orlando in the Asexual Manifesto, which is from 1972. So evidence that asexuality has been talked about for a long time and much longer than that. So Lisa Orlando describes asexuality as a self-contained sexuality. So asexuality simply does not require the use of another person or another person's body to be expressed or fulfilled. And that expression or fulfillment can be achieved in a number of ways. Sexuality is a is a whole spectrum. So everyone exists at some point on that spectrum. And many people's sexuality is more complicated than society likes to pretend. So I think it's very important to move away from the language of quote-unquote lack when talking about asexuality. When did you first start to explore this topic academically? So, you you know, you heard the word when you were doing research about a friend, started to learn a little about yourself. And um, tell me how that how that evolved into this deeper dive into the subject. I didn't write about it in grad school because in grad school I was writing about, <laughs> unsurprisingly, horror movies. And so after grad school, I started to work in digital publication. I was a deputy editor for the Black Youth Project. And then I became an editor at Warrior Voice magazine which no longer exists. I remember it. It was wonderful. We still have the content archive, though. So when I was there, I began writing about asexuality, and that was a few years ago, maybe five years ago, I think I started, because I wanted to fill in the gaps that I saw that were present in public conversation about the asexuality spectrum. I was tired of asexuality (laughs) one-on-one. Like, I had already been reading those things for so long, and I wanted to go beyond that and push the conversation where it hadn't been before, at least from what I had seen. And there came a point where I realized that I simply wasn't growing. I wasn't learning anything new, and there was nothing available to help me grow, which meant there were other people out there in the same position who were feeling the same sort of exasperation and longing that I was feeling, and someone needed to make room for us. 
So I decided that I would contribute what I could. (laughs) And all the while knowing full well that I still had a ways to go myself, but I had to start somewhere. Back before Sharonda could offer her own astute insights on queer theory and ace identity, she had a bit of unlearning to do. So I was raised in a Southern Black Christian household, first and foremost. That's very important. So what I learned about sex at church, we didn't really talk about it at home. What I learned was that sex was sinful and taboo, of course, especially queer iterations of sex. Those were never talked about in a positive light. They were only ever talked about in a way that demonized them. And sex was only for married people to procreate. (laughs) That was it, pretty much. But the thing about purity culture is that it teaches you that we all desire sex, that we all desire this so-called unclean thing, and that that desire makes us unclean ourselves. And then so we have to repent for that. And so that was drilled into my head as a kid. But as I got older, I became more exposed to how my peers were talking about sex. I began to see it differently, but still not in a healthy way. Because in what the church would call the secular world, sex was seen as an achievement, as this marker of attractiveness and popularity and social value. And so it became shameful to be sexually inexperienced by a certain age. I can remember being aggressively asked if I was still a virgin as early as the sixth grade. And not being believed when I told people that I had not had sex. And I can also remember very vividly being groped by boys on the playground as early as the fourth grade. And I can also remember adults, fully grown adults, commenting on my body as young as third grade and already beginning to conceive of me as not just a sexual being, but a sexually irresponsible being that was already being written on to me. So like pretty much everyone, I got mixed messages about sex and about what expectations people had for me based on what they believed the sexual life of someone with my body should look like. When did you first start to notice that your personal experience of all of this attraction and relationships and sex, when did you first start to notice that your experience was divergent from the norms of either of those worlds? I would say that, so I've recently learned within the last few years that I'm also neurodivergent. And so I've always had this feeling of being different and being outside of the norm pretty much my whole life. And that is absolutely wrapped up with sexuality and gender for me. I would say that it became really apparent in high school when there were people around me who I called my friends who would actually get legitimately upset with me because I did not pursue relationships with people who expressed interest in me. And I could not figure out why they were so upset. And I started to feel so much pressure to participate in this world that I didn't really have an active desire to be in. I mean, like all young people, I had a desire to be loved. I had a desire to be accepted, to be welcomed into the community and have connections with other people. I wanted all those things. But basically what I was being told and still am being told in a lot of ways is that there was no way for me to make those connections without offering up myself in a romantic and sexual way. Can you describe a little bit more about the ways that 
our society prescribes this compulsory sexuality. Of course, there's the church that has one narrative, but where are some other sources of this social pressure as you've experienced it to perform compulsory sexuality? Okay, I think we can start in a lot of places, but I would start with Maslow's hierarchy of needs, which was misappropriated from Native Americans, I think specifically Blackfoot Nation. Yeah, so it was created by Maslow in 1943, I believe. And what Maslow did was go and observe these indigenous people and their more community-focused ways of living and supporting each other and created a model that was more about the individual, which is so typical of, you know, a white Western imagination and colonial thought. So in his model, which is, takes the shape of a triangle, I'm sure most people have seen it because it's been taught in schools for over half a century, this triangle, the most important needs are on the bottom. And then that serves as a foundation for all other needs being met. And he places sex on the bottom as a basic human need. And like I said, this model has been taught for over half a century. So now there are at least three generations of people who have learned that sex is a basic human need. And that coupled with sex education curriculum that typically does not teach about queer sexualities, especially not asexuality. That creates this, I don't know, vortex, (laughs) I guess, of people having learned pretty early in their lives that sex is something that humans need to do in order to be healthy, in order to be normal. And then when they come up against someone who falls outside of that, outside of what is deemed normal, they consider that, that existence to be wrong and shameful. So not centering sex as a basic need in your life makes you into a target for people who either fear or are comfortable with sexual difference, especially those who have sexual entitlement. After diving into her own research on the asexuality spectrum, Sharonda was starting to see just how much the world needed this knowledge. Plus, as her own asexuality was becoming apparent to her, she realized that the unique confluence of identities that she inhabited made her especially well-suited to elucidate the subject. And so, earlier this year, she released her first book, Refusing Compulsory Sexuality, A Black Asexual Lens on Our Sex-Obsessed Culture. In it, Sharonda reveals how capitalism and colonialism begat compulsory sexuality as a means of sustaining themselves, and how Black folks have borne the brunt of that oppression. What white supremacy has also done is create this narrative that non-white people are hypersexual beings, which I talk about quite a lot in the book. And this has deeply impacted the experience of Black people in Western countries, specifically because of the history of chattel slavery. And I know it has existed elsewhere. Um, But like you said, I wrote it from the perspective of someone born and raised in the U.S. because this is the only perspective I can write from. So that that myth of Black hypersexuality was used to justify sexual violence against enslaved Black folks. And that sexual violence was a central piece of the slavery industry because it was used to produce more slaves and keep the industry alive. A domestic supply, if you will. But I also think it's not just that we are constantly battling this myth of hypersexualization of Black folks. It's that we are also battling purity culture in the Black church for people who are a part of that. We also have to deal with massage noir, which is, you know, the specific form of misogyny that Black women and Black people socialize as women or viewed as women have to experience. And so 
it's a, a joint project of colonialism and white supremacy and black patriarchy and purity culture and all of these different things. I think black people are already starting to, to challenge that. And I think black people always have been in their, in different ways. But I can tell you that I have seen a response to my book that I was not expecting to see. I was not expecting so many people to be interested in it. And I think part of that is because even I have not realized the sheer scope of the amount of Black asexual identified people who exist or Black folks who are actually thinking about whether or not they are on the asexuality spectrum or at the very least are interested in learning about it. And it's been a pleasant surprise and a pleasant awakening that there are people who are very interested in thinking about these things. I mean, in order for us to get to a place where we start to tear down those stereotypes and these myths, we have to first know that it's possible to exist in a, a way that doesn't align with those things. And so a lot of people just need someone to tell them that it's possible, which is what I try to do with my book and various Twitter rants and other published essays. I just want to tell people that it's possible. And I think that for a lot of people, once they know that it's possible, they will go and seek out how to create for themselves a life where they can live with the level of sexual autonomy that they want, whether that involves them being in an active, continued sexual relationship with someone or whether that means that they are not going to have sex at all or some anywhere in between. Sexual autonomy just means engaging with sex in however you want to, even if it includes no sex at all. For Black people specifically, what do you think a liberated relationship to our bodies and our sexuality can look like? Because this is one of those things that requires a big imagination. I think Black liberation in any form requires a big imagination. I think that Black imagination is the first step in any sort of uprising or pushback. Because first we have to imagine that we are free, right? And first we have to imagine that we can abolish all of these oppressive systems. And first we have to imagine the fact that our bodies are our own and they don't belong to anyone else. I don't know if I have a definitive answer for what it might look like, but I know for sure it involves us actively thinking through everything that we have been taught is true about ourselves and about the world and about blackness and whiteness and actively pushing back about against those things, both in terms of the way that we think about the world and the way that we move throughout the world. We have to release ourselves from the burden of living up to other people's expectations. And we have to give ourselves permission to do it. Despite the insistence of some gatekeepers, asexuality is queer, full stop. First of all, we need to think of queerness as a politic itself, more so than an identity, because queerness is absolutely about challenging heteronormative and cis-normative concepts, concepts that seek to homogenize sexuality and gender. Queerness is absolutely radical in nature and subversive in nature because of what it asks of us. And because of what it says is possible. Queerness says to us that it's possible to exist outside of the things that are called normal and to have a full life while 
existing in that way. And it also names that the systems that want us to become, want us to remain homogenous are violent systems. Asexuality is a part of that because it also names that the systems that want us to perform a sexuality that is not inherent to us is a violent system. I don't think you can separate giving yourself permission to be your most authentic self from embracing your own queerness and embracing a queer politic. And this isn't to say that cis straight people can't also have a queer politic, that they can't also be invested in challenging the various systems that keep them in positions of power over queer people. Right. This is work for all of us. And in fact, the burden of undoing these harms should not fall primarily on on those most impacted. And so, yeah, I, I appreciate you naming that a, a queer politic and a queer identity are not one and the same and that it will take all of us to build the world that we are imagining to be free of these hegemonic social structures. I guess I'm wondering, like, if people are listening to this and being like, okay, I see how this is all linked. I see how compulsory sexuality and white supremacy and colonialism, I see now how they're all locked together in such a way that, you know, you can't really topple one without toppling them all. What are some of the most potent ways that we can divest from this system? I think we can start by not pathologizing what is called low sexual interest (laughs) or low sexual desire, we can stop pathologizing and medicalizing that, first of all, because people on every part of the sexuality spectrum can experience that at some point in life for a number of different reasons. And I write about this a bit in my book about how the concept of low sexual desire is absolutely gendered because it gets applied to women and people assigned womanhood more often than anyone else. And it gets connected to both psychological and physiological deficits and unhealthy sort of individual failings of the person who has this low sexual desire. Starting there for sure. And then also starting with not doing what is called virgin shaming, Like, first of all, virginity doesn't exist, which is another conversation altogether. But shaming people, especially young people who have not had sexual experience or enough sexual experience or the right kind of sexual experience in order to be considered cool and normal (laughs) and valuable and attractive and all these things. And also not holding ourselves to anybody else's standard of what our sexual experience should be at any point in life. For me, it was about weighing, would I rather lead an inauthentic life or an authentic one? And I decided on the authentic one. And I knew that a lot of uncomfortable things were going to come with leading an authentic life. But I would rather be authentic than be miserable, pretending to be someone I'm not. And just continuing a cycle of pressuring other people to be someone they're not. And that's what it comes down to, right? Like all of all of these social norms exist in part to get you to disregard what you know to be true about yes. yourself or what you could learn to be true if you were just given five minutes to, yeah. <laughs> to have that space. They exist to prevent you from asking these questions. Because if you ask the questions, then the answers could topple society as it exists, which, you know, people who are profiting off of status quo do not want. Right, which is why they're trying to legislate 
queer and trans people out of existence. And you can't even talk about queer people in some public schools now. They don't want people to know these possibilities exist, which is why it's important for us to keep talking about the fact that they do. That's author and essayist Sharonda J. Brown. You can find her on Twitter and Instagram at Sharonda J. Brown. If you'd like to buy her book, Refusing Compulsory Sexuality, A Black Asexual Lens on Our Sex-Obsessed Culture, you can find a link in the show notes. I could not recommend it more highly to anyone with an interest in sexual politics and especially to my fellow sex educators. This one is required reading. We've talked a lot about ace identity on the show. Is there anything that hasn't come up yet that you'd like to hear about? To suggest a topic or maybe appear on the show, reach out with an email or a voice memo to askaria at lustery.com. Or you can find me on Twitter at Vega Dreamcast. You're also welcome to remain anonymous. If you're into the show, please leave us a five-star rating and a review. POV is brought to you by Lustery, and this episode was hosted and produced by me, Aria Vega. It was edited by Katherine Fisher and Adrian Teicher, and the show's creator is Paulita Papel. Lustery is the home of real-life partners filming their sex lives behind closed doors. If you're 18 or older, you can find us at Lustery.com, and we're on Twitter and Instagram at LusteryPOV. Bye now, lovers.